Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tuso. And I'm Ann Friedman. Hi, Ann Friedman. What's going on? Just hanging out together again. Love it. Hanging out in your blue state home. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my little red state nugget. How's it going? You know, Iowa is like, uh, can go lots of different ways. It's like home of Steve King and also place that was really loving Obama. Like it's a complicated place like most states. You mean real America, Anne? <laughs> oh my God, you are... <laughs> Thank you for setting this up so well. On today's agenda, I talked to the journalist Samantha Allen, who's a reporter for the Daily Beast, about her new book, Real Queer America, LGBT Stories from Red States. I think this book is doing the important work of showing what queer communities look like in places where they are not often described and written about. I've been really excited listening to you talk about your experience reading the book. And now I'm excited to read the book. I love a travelogue. Yes, it's a road trip book. Love a travelogue. Always. I also just really like this idea. You know, it almost sounds dumb when you say it, right? But living on a coast is not a personality. So, and just this idea, you know, that if you are, that if you are a queer person, that living in the middle of the country, it's a thing that you need to shed. It's both preposterous and also kind of sad and also just, it's just not true. I'm really excited about listening to you talk to Samantha about what it is like to tell the rest of the country that queer people are actually everywhere. 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 They're not (laughs) new. Have you seen the Quinta Bronson meme? It's my favorite thing in the world where she looks like this very like 70s person and it just says people be gay. (laughs) (laughs) And I love it so much because I, and I think about it all the time whenever I see like homophobia or transphobia on my timeline or people are still talking about it. It's like, listen, people be gay, people be queer. Welcome to 2019. Welcome to all of history. They've they've been around. (laughs) They've just been around. They live everywhere. Here is a, here is a travel diary of many different queer people in the country who are leading uh, just their lives and they're worth hearing. Yeah, and I think obviously for a lot of the people that she interviews, their queer identity, their lesbian identity, their bisexual identity, their trans identity is a big part of who they are. But many of these people are also like a huge part of who I am as someone who likes living in a small town or likes mm-hmm. living in the state of Georgia or likes live, you know, likes going to my local dive bar where all kinds of people who identify in all kinds of ways across the queer spectrum are hanging out together. And like thinking about the fact that any experience is multifaceted and the way that she is getting into some of those details and really hanging out with some very cool people who it, it is fun to meet through this book was one of my favorite things about it. I also, I think that it does a good job of getting away from media narratives of kind of like fetishizing only a certain type of person from a red state. And, you know, like I'm thinking Ooh, about what kind of person. Oh, you know, like used to be a coal miner is probably a 
straight white person. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I we we know we know like the 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 stereotype from a campaign season profile of like who lives in certain parts of the country and people who live there know that that's not the full story. I always used to get so mad when political reporters would only go to the old fashioned diner on the town square where like five old racist guys hung out as opposed to going to the Applebee's by the highway where everyone was really hanging out. <laughs> like, 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 you know, because Applebee's does not have like the Applebee's by the highway does not have the same like down homey look like no one's in overalls there, you know? Right. And um, like, no, this is literally where the racists hang out is this place <laughs> right or really just like this tiny like th- like essentially you can kind of see reporters chasing their idea of who lives in a place mm-hmm. as opposed to talking to a lot of people there and i think you know samantha is someone who having lived in georgia and in utah and a lot of places where she found community and noticed that disconnect of like hey who doesn't get interviewed when these places are written about and i'm gonna go do that work is very cool and you know is real with or without quotation marks <laughs> i love this if you live in america you're a real american 100 percent. anyone american. who lives here everyone who lives here well i am very excited to listen to you and samantha talk and uh you know find out more about real america oh my god stop it <laughs> you're my real american friend Anne. Uh, you're my real american friend listen listen you're more american than anyone i know it's true me i'm like a borderline a republican american so <laughs> don't even um you know how i turn when i go outside of the country i become very i become very american i don't like it when people talk smack about america outside of the country mm. Well, you've chosen. America is the boo you've chosen. It's so. the boo I've chosen. So, you know, you make your bed. Got a line up. That is the perfect intro to this interview. <laughs> Samantha, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Beautiful and often ignored, I feel like, is a theme that runs through your book in terms of the places that you visited and um, came to know as a reporter and in some cases also as a friend, people who live there. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the premise of the book and um, what inspired you to write it. Yeah. So, you know, after um, the 2016 presidential election, I was not feeling particularly happy or optimistic about the direction the country was going really? in, to say the least. <laughs> really? <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> but, you know, I, At the same time, I was also seeing like a lot of sentiment on social media that was enraging me of like, oh, the red states did this to us, you know, let's, you know, cut them off. They're just, I don't know, eating up all of our tax dollars while contributing nothing to our economy, like, you know, uh, pretty elitist sentiment, I think. And having come out in Georgia, lived in Georgia for five years, um, you know, I met my wife in Indiana. i found all these amazing friends in Tennessee. I just thought that attitude did a tremendous disservice to the number of amazing LGBT and progressive people living in in red states who are fighting to change them and um, I don't think should be thrown away because, you know, their electorates go a certain way during the presidential election. Right, and so you took this road trip, right? Yeah. And so I decided I wanted to kind of revisit a lot of places that were personally important to me and a few new places too, interviewing LGBT people, 
you know, some who like work for advocacy organizations, but also just some like everyday folks. Um, I, there's an entire chapter that's basically just about my friends in Tennessee. I just wanted to kind of show the vitality and the warmth of these communities where where they kind of know what they're up against at, at the level of their state legislature, but it really kind of unifies them. There's a, this warmth and adhesiveness there. Yeah, I mean, you write that places are so much more than their laws. And I've been thinking about that because there was, you know, there were four years of an Obama presidency where I think people who lived in blue states could kid ourselves that there was this alignment between what's happening on the books and maybe like who we are or something like that, like who we want to be. And now it's not just red states. Like I think it's everyone who has a politics of inclusivity and social justice orientation is feeling not represented by like the laws on the books. And so I think like that is one important thing you're doing here is saying like, okay, you've heard about these bathroom bills, for example, in XYZ state, but you have not heard about the people who live here and the way that they are creating community. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that disconnect and whether an, a legislative atmosphere that is not hospitable, what effect that has on the day-to-day lives of the people living under it. Yeah, I mean, you you point out one thing, which is kind of like a a frustration of mine, which is often like when the national media gets interested in LGBT issues in a lot of these states, it's just because, oh, there's this horrific anti-LGBT bill that's been proposed. And, you know, they'll they'll just cover the bill and they'll get a, a quote from the LGBT advocacy organization there. And then they'll get a quote from the, you know, anti-LGBT group that's uh, drafted the bill and and just call it a day. And what really gets missed in that equation is is really kind of the lived detail of people's lives in these communities. And, you know, f- Folks, I mean, I think most about a place like um, like Texas, where there's just like a tremendous effort in the legislature to pass some sort of anti-LGBT bill every year. The year I was writing this book, there was an attempt to pass a bathroom bill. And folks in these communities, they're aware of this tremendous hostility, but they really kind of take it in stride. They've, they've built informal networks of support that allow them allow them to survive, often thrive. And then when it comes time to protest, it's just kind of like, oh, here we go again. We're going to go to the state house. It's what we do every summer. (laughs) Uh, And they they go to the state house and they yell and shout in the rotunda and kill a bill or two and, and do it again the next year. That is a really nice distillation of something that I have noticed, um, you know, in being a part of activist communities in the middle of Missouri versus like a large city in California, which are like two experiences I have had, the level of kind of skin in the game commitment and the like, you know, lack of fatigue that I have observed and participated in when I am in um, maybe a more small or smaller or more rural activist community is super palpable. And um, I think that that's a thread that runs through your book too, about the ways that, LGBT community feels different when it is within a red state or within a rural area versus, you know, a community as part of a big coastal city. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that, like not just on a level of we go out and protest when we need to, but some of the ways in which you think 
these communities are different than what is portrayed as kind of the standard LGBT community in a big city. One of the things that made the biggest impression on me was uh, someone I met in Utah. His name was Adam Sims. He said, oppression and opposition can build the most beautiful connections. And I, I think within the LGBT community specifically, one thing I noticed the most is LGBT is four letters and there are longer versions of the acronym. There are a lot of people who are represented under that acronym, but I found in my red state communities that more folks from each letter are all kind of hanging out together than, say, in kind of large coastal metropolises because folks have all kind of had to come up together in terms of like rights and legislation and that kind of thing. You end up with this I don't know, sort of bond between the whole community. I mean, it's not perfect, mind you, but it's a far cry from, say, like, I don't know, Massachusetts, right, where same-sex marriage happened, like, so long before, like, a fully comprehensive transgender rights bill. And in my experience, that can really kind of, like, bifurcate the community. So when you go to a city like uh, Jackson, Mississippi, which I did near the end of my trip, one of the things that really impresses me is you go to this one nightclub and you go to this one nightclub because it's the only LGBT nightclub in town. It's called Wonderlust. It's an amazing nightclub. Everyone is there. Um, everyone of different races, different genders, different sexual orientations, all in, in one nightclub. And then when you go to like New York City, the queer nightlife there is like, oh, here's the bar for like older gay men. And then here's the bar where black LGBT people go or that kind of everything is all just kind of taxonomized. Yeah. I mean, I love that chapter about Wonderlust, which is the name of that club in Jackson. And there's this quote that um, I've been thinking about, the quote from your friend in Mississippi who says, why am I proud to be from a state that continuously invalidates my identity? I wonder if you could speak to that tension or that um, the fact that that is present along with such a deep love for the community that exists there. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, everywhere you find kind of like in LGBT communities, at least, just because you have a state that's trying to pass a bathroom bill or trying to pass a, a you know religious freedom act that's actually just about discriminating against LGBT people. It doesn't mean that the LGBT people in those communities can disavow the very like real attachments they've developed to the to the culture of that place. You know, my friend Kaylee, who who you just quoted, like what she loves about Mississippi is the the hospitality, the warmth, the pace of life. And, you know, when people kind of mock her state or kind of dismiss it as backwards or regressive, it's painful for her because she loves Mississippi. She loves having grown up there. I don't know. It's a baby bathwater situation. <laughs> we should just because state legislators need to be chided for laws that they're trying to pass doesn't mean we need to dismiss, I don't know, what the South especially has to offer culturally. I I fell in love with the South when I moved there. I, I sort of wish more people could experience that. I sort of think it should be kind of like required to live in the South for at least a year. <laughs> Thank you.
couple of people in this book, or rather we meet them through you, who speak a little bit to the difficulty of finding um, these communities, finding LGBT community in some of these places, because it's not... Um, it's not always signposted or flagged. Like they kind of say, oh, you know, it took me a while. I had to meet the right person. And then I kind of, this whole world opened up to me. I'm totally paraphrasing. Um, I'm wondering, uh, I'm wondering how you think that affects the communities themselves and whether um, some, on some level, the like outside narratives about red states, like maybe national media narratives about red states contribute to the invisibility of some of these communities. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things you find is that, you know, uh, we talked about Wanderlust a second ago, like nightlife can be really, really, really vital in the way that it used to be for the entire LGBT community in a, a way where it's it's kind of growing less relevant in a bigger bigger cities like New York or Los Angeles where LGBT people feel more comfortable going to, I don't know, just regular clubs, right? Um, so, you know, in a lot of these cities like Jackson, Mississippi, or Bloomington, Indiana, which is another place um, I wrote about in the book, you kind of have to find, oh, here's the one LGBT nightclub in town. Let me go there. Let me meet some friends, find out where they hang out during the day, that kind of thing. Um, ah, you know, it, it's kind of a double-edged sword situation because on one hand, it's almost, um, it's, it's almost fun to kind of like flit through the shadows. The the great club that I love in Bloomington, Indiana is called The Back Door. And it's a reference to a time when literally you had to find a gay nightclub. You had to kind of go in the back entrance or know a code word or that kind of thing. So I sort of love that feeling. But at the same time, it can be really challenging for someone who, I don't know, just lands in Bloomington, Indiana, because you, you really have to become sort of an amateur detective and figure out where are all the queer people and and then but once you do that you realize oh they're they're all around me they've been around me the entire time right is there a moment when when you've come to that point when you've lived in a place that isn't on its face super lgbt friendly yeah so uh, you know i moved to georgia in 2010 i was still to start a graduate program at Emory University. I was still in the closet at the time. I hadn't yet come out as a transgender woman. I was coming from New Jersey. I had never lived in the South before. And even kind of in the context of my liberal university and a humanities program surrounded by queer people, I had like so many preconceptions about the South and about Georgia. I didn't think it would be a safe place for me to come out and transition. I didn't think I would be able to really like find community in that city. And then I, I came out in 2012. My advisor was like, oh, here's the doctor who can give you hormones. Here's the counselor who can, you know, talk you through this. And also, you know, Emory now has fully inclusive benefits and everything was just all laid out. And then, you know, I started interacting more with queer people at the school and then branching out from there to the point where, you know, I would go like speak at a college, like um, an hour's drive outside of Atlanta. And there were all of these amazing, like young trans and queer students who were there in the middle of rural Georgia. Suddenly I felt really silly that I was, that I had been scared to come out in this state because there were queer people everywhere. Like a, a good horror movie <laughs> where you, 
Or I'm picturing the kind of like everything goes to Technicolor, not to be stereotypical Wizard of Oz about it. But um, yeah, where you suddenly could see this in a different way. Yeah, or Pleasantville. Yes, Pleasantville. That's right. That's right. It's interesting because you mentioned your advisor at Emory who um, you tell a little bit of his story as someone who tried to make a life in Washington, D.C., which is, I think, known as a very, especially like gay male friendly, but in general, LGBT friendly city. And he hated it and was like, get me back to Georgia or get me back to somewhere more rural. I'm wondering how you feel this idea of there's only one space that you can go to make a life if you are growing up queer in America and you should be aspiring toward a city. How do you think that negatively affects, or how does that affect, I shouldn't even put my own judgment on it, LGBT kids who are growing up in more rural places, who might feel kind of country at heart, but also feel like they've got to go to a city to get the life they want? Yeah, I feel like there's this real disjuncture between what's happening with the LGBT community in, in the United States and sort of what's still the dominant media framework for for kind of understanding that community. Like, I think we're still kind of stuck in this mindset of like, oh, all the LGBT people, they're buying that, you know, one-way bus ticket from Kansas City and getting off the bus in the Big Apple. And when you look at what's happening demographically, that's not really the case anymore. Millennials are moving south and west to uh, more affordable mid-sized cities. The percentage of LGBT people who are coming out in places like Salt Lake City or uh, Norfolk, Virginia are just like really leaping up in the rankings while places like New York or San Francisco are sort of staying static. The LGBT center of gravity in, in this country is, is, is shifting and we're not really, I think, taking full stock of it. It's why I wanted to write the book is is to say, look, you know, if the dominant narrative of the 20th century was like all the LGBT people are fleeing to the coasts, I think the 21st century narrative is about um, LGBT people saying, look, maybe I want to move out of my rural small town, but I'm not going to go all the way to New York or San Francisco. I'm going to go to Asheville, I'm going to go to Salt Lake, I'm going to go to St. Louis. Uh, and, and that's really going to change the face of the country in terms of LGBT acceptance. Right. Absolutely. And I also think that when you start to talk about and really break down um, the narrative versus the reality, you have this note in the book about the disconnect that many LGBT people in red states feel um, from both people in you know, kind of like the big stereotypical gay safe haven cities and also the media narrative. And that is not just cultural, but financial. And I'm wondering if you could talk about the financial picture a little bit, because it's something that I think about a lot when I think about particularly urban rural, but also red and blue state disconnect. Yeah, I mean, one of the ways I feel this the most, and Adam, this might be a controversial viewpoint, but, you know, I've, I've worked in LGBT media for a while and there's kind of an article, I it feels like one every other week about like, oh, this gay bar in Brooklyn is closing or this gay bar in the Castro district is closing. And there's this sort of like, I don't know, eulogizing of it. And at once I totally understand, like these are institutions that have been around for a while. They have a lot of personal importance for people. On the other hand, I think we're spending a lot of time talking about what affluent gay folks in big cities are worried about and thinking about, and we're not really thinking about 
uh, we're talking enough about kind of lived realities for LGBT people elsewhere. I mean, one of the most moving experiences for me writing the book was to go to the Rio Grande Valley, a place I had never been before, where something like nearly like one in three people are living in poverty there. And I think we tend I think at least due to kind of the marketing around LGBT people, it's always like travel and alcohol. There's this association of like the LGBT community with affluence. And that's um, that's definitely not the case uh, in, in red states. I'm wondering how the picture of some of these communities is complicated or maybe different for queer people of color. Um, because you write a little bit about how in order to get to some of these LGBT havens within red states, you really have to be driving through a countryside that's dotted with Confederate flags or that might be openly hostile um, and racist on that level. I didn't mention this in the book, but, you know, I got pulled over twice during this (laughs) six-week-long road trip, uh, once in Utah because I was tapping my navigation on my phone while I was driving, and then once in Arkansas because I guess I was just, I don't know, it was like 10 p.m. and I was in a rented SUV with out-of-state plates kind of driving around in this small community. But those are situations in which I would have been Uh, really terrified to have been pulled over were I a person of color. So, like, I was really cognizant during the entire process of researching and writing this book of the ways in which uh, my privilege as a white person was allowing me to actually traverse these spaces. It's true, you see a lot of Confederate flags, Confederate memorabilia. I noticed it uh, the most in in Arkansas, where a lot of people were telling me, "Oh, you've got to go to this small resort town. It's called Eureka Springs. It's amazing." Um, and it was about an hour and a half outside of Fayetteville. And on the way there, I passed just a ton of Confederate flags, and I thought, "Wow, this would not be a relaxing weekend for me if I were a person of color to fly into Fayetteville and drive to Eureka Springs. Like I would be totally on edge when I arrived, instead of I don't know, ready to check into my bed and breakfast and." have brunch or something like that. I I think, you know, not just as a traveler, but as people who live in these spaces, it really can kind of really impact the way that you experience them. Like, I was really moved by going back to Bloomington, Indiana, where I met my my wife and speaking with someone named Janae Cummings. Uh, She's Black. She runs Bloomington Pride. And she talked to me about how she feels you know, just uncomfortable holding hands sometimes with uh, her partner in that city and about how, you know, she kind of feels this very kind of visceral discomfort when she sees a Confederate flag sticker on a truck in traffic. And uh, it just made me realize that I had had maybe kind of rose-colored glasses on when I was in Bloomington and didn't see some of the very real things that, that someone like Janae experiences in that place. Right. To that end as well, and you mentioned this phrase rose-colored glasses. I'm I found myself wondering if you, due to the overwhelming narrative of these places as not safe or not great for LGBT people, if you felt like you had to be a cheerleader for these communities, or if you felt some sense of difficulty in explaining what was negative or hard about building queer community in these places. I'm I'm wondering if that was hard for you, if you felt like you had to be more PR mode than you really wanted to be as a reporter. You know, I, um, I, 
I made a conscious note that in every chapter, I am going to list all of the awful things about <laughs> being LGBT in these states. I would, I would list all of the anti-LGBT laws on the books. I would, I didn't want to paint these as as paradises or, or perfect places for LGBT people. And I, I, but at the same time, I, um, I really did want people to fall in love with these places. So yeah, you know, I, I stressed the good, I would say, um, but not in a way that ever felt to me disingenuous. Right. I could just I could feel that tension a little bit and relate to it because I um, I think it can be hard when you really when you're covering something that has been so negatively covered or not covered at all. The temptation is for me always to be cheerleading. Yeah. I'm wondering if there's a place you went to that particularly surprised you. You know, it's a place I have lived in, uh, and it's Provo, Utah. So this was, again, uh, before my transition, before I came out. Um, But when I started college in 2005, I went to Brigham Young University. It's owned by the Mormon Church. I was raised Mormon. Uh, It's not a religion that's particularly LGBT-friendly, although the membership um, is slowly changing their views. You know, when I was at BYU, I was just terrified of the idea of, I don't know, coming out there or telling anyone that I was exploring my gender identity or things like that. It just didn't seem possible to be openly LGBT there. I went back to Provo in downtown Provo, right across the street from the Mormon temple. There is now this amazing LGBT youth center called Encircle, where I met the most amazing people. I met all of these like trans and gender nonconforming kids who were just hanging out and playing card games and drinking sodas and having snacks. Um, and a lot of their parents were Mormon and uh, were supportive of their kids or trying to be supportive or coming to discussion groups at this center. And it just, it shocked me that this place in which I had once felt so much terror was now this really like warm, welcoming environment, at least in the sort of, you know, confines of this, uh, of this youth center. It was really moving to be there. I love that. I'm also thinking about people listening to this who might find themselves uh, either moving to a red state or perhaps even like you on a road trip through one, what you would say to them if they are eager to seek out the LGBT community there, whether it be a bar or like a business or what's the way in if you are, if you are merely visiting and want to support or get a taste of what's happening in these communities? LGBT businesses and LGBT friendly businesses in these places need your support. So seek them out. Use Yelp and see who has gender neutral bathrooms. That's a really good way to find LGBT friendly businesses. Autostraddle is a, a queer women's focused website that's published a lot of kind of like city guides. Um, some of them are more recent than others, and some of the businesses on those may have closed because they're hard to keep open. But yeah, find the bar, find the cafe, find the movie theater that will show you like a lesbian drama from the 90s or something and and go there and, and give them your money because uh, that, that really helps the communities there. Yes. And finally, we've talked a lot about this being a road trip book, and we like to ask all of our guests 
um, about their favorite snacks. And so I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about your favorite road trip snacks, like for this road trip or any road trip. This is going to be a controversial choice, but uh, the amount of Chick-fil-A that my <laughs> friend and I ate on this trip was uh, just beyond. I think we probably had it, I don't know, once every other day. It's just really good chicken. I'm sorry. Wow. The, wow. I'm so- <laughs> um, and, and yeah, you mentioned, this is another thing we like to ask um, about the people in your network who are who are really really core to you and I know that you um, you did this road trip uh, with a friend and maybe you could talk about them a little bit too yeah so my friend Billy he is a transgender guy and he uh, came out around the same time as me in 2012 uh, and before his transition when he was in high school and the start of his college years, he actually dated my wife. So it's kind of a a small, um, small world, tight knit community. But I mean, this is sort of what queer people talk about when we talk about chosen families. We always have these, I don't know, really complex and intertangled uh, networks of support. And so um, Billy, He's he's really great. He's really funny. And he agreed to come along with me on this trip for six weeks and transcribe interviews and see the country. Transcribing is my least favorite part of <laughs> interviewing people. And so he just heroically, uh, I, th- I say that he did more work on the book than I did because it was my least favorite part. And if I had to transcribe all of the interviews we did, all like three dozen of them or something like that, the book would be coming out in 2025. (laughs) Many hands make a book like this. So Samantha, I really appreciate your book and appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. If listeners want to follow your work or read more of your writing, what is the best way for them to do that? Yeah, they can go to www.samanthaleeallen.com. Uh, All my stuff is up there. Wonderful. And we'll link to it in the show notes too. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. It's a delight. I am really excited to read this book now. Yeah. And I definitely am like, who is adapting this into the like queer road trip buddy comedy that we need? Because I would also love to watch this represented as opposed to just read some of these stories in the book. And maybe you're going to become a producer. Oh Who God. knows? Listen, Who knows? I'm, I'm an armchair producer the way I'm now an armchair editor where I just walk around being like, you should write that. Someone <laughs> should make that like without <laughs> actually being the one to follow through. Free idea dot biz. The Ann Friedman story. Just giving away these ideas for other people to put the work into. Love it. <laughs> Uh, all right i'll see you in in a blue state boo boo (laughs) see you soon you can find us many places on the internet on our website callyourgirlfriend.com you can download the show anywhere you listen to your faves or on apple podcast where we would love it if you left us a review you can email us at callyrgf at gmail.com we're on instagram twitter and facebook at callyrgf You can even leave us a short and sweet voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. Our associate producer is Destry Maria Sibley. 
This podcast is produced by Gina Dalvac.